0: In the book of Exodus, when God had sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go, um, Pharaoh's initial response was, well, no, there's no way I'm going to do that. And so God kept sending these plagues, and eventually God broke Pharaoh, and he let the children of Israel go. But what's really interesting is that in the account of Pharaoh's response, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. God would say, hey, I'm going to send a plague if you don't let my children go. So Pharaoh would say, I'm not letting them go. God would send the plague. So here's the thing. Pharaoh would see the hand of God move in his midst. Pharaoh would say, Moses, you know, tell your God to release this plague. We'll let let your children of Israel go. And the, the plague would go. Or it would just be for an appointed time and it would cease, whichever way it was. But Pharaoh would see the hand of God, he would know it wasn't just coincidence, it was the living God doing these things. And seeing that, he would still harden his heart. He would see a miracle. He would see God move. And he would say, nah. And he'd harden his heart against God. you like, man, that's crazy. How, how could anybody do that in, in light of what he saw? Well, there's many other examples we could give of that, but if you fast forward to the life of Jesus, you have God in the flesh, walking among his creation, raising the dead. Kind of a big deal, right? Making blind men to see. Feeding the multitude from a few loaves and some fish. I mean, we're talking about undeniable miracles. Not disputed, not like, oh, it was some trick photography and mirrors. No. No. Real miracles that people saw that they acknowledged as real miracles, and the Pharisees seeing these things, some of which Jesus did on a Sunday or on a Sabbath on a Saturday, their response was, "Let's put him to death for doing that on our holy day. He's doing a work. Isn't that crazy? You're going to try to kill the man that just raised somebody from the dead? That's a great business model right there. Right? Give me a break." But it speaks to the insanity of sin that throughout time people have seen the mighty acts of God. They have seen undeniably God has just moved right in front of me. God has done something and I've seen it. But I'm gonna harden my heart. I'm not going to respond appropriately. I'm not going to obey this God. I'm going to continue to do what I want to do. You know, for a believer... As we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus saves us. We hear the gospel, we we hear the word, we believe and we're saved. That's a miracle. God changing a heart is a miracle. God taking a soul that is hell bound and giving us an inheritance of glory, that is a miracle. And for us as believers to receive that miracle and then to turn away from the grace of God and to worship the idols of this world is just as insane as Pharaoh hardening his heart or the Pharisees saying, let's kill him. The insanity of sin. We'd see God move in our midst, and we'd say, "Mm, that's not for me. But God in his mercy delays his judgment, giving us opportunities to repent. And I've titled today's message, The Mercy of Repentance, and we'll be in Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21, Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21, looking at the mercy of repentance. Let's pick up right where we left off last week, verse 13. This is the sixth trumpet judgment. It says, Then the six angels sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, we'll see this is not the voice of God. This is somebody speaking on behalf of God because um, this is speaking from the altar. But God is on the throne. So this is a voice speaking. This is a representative for God. And this altar is the altar of incense. Uh, We saw this before in Revelation 8, 4 through 5, where the prayers of the saints were offered on this altar. Remember? And then a coal was taken from the altar, a fiery coal, and ember, and thrown down to the earth as a form of judgment. So this is the second time we've seen this altar of incense in heaven, and it points back to Exodus 30. We've covered that before, so we're not going to go to that today. But this is this image. There's this altar before the throne of God, this altar of incense, where the prayers of the saints have been offered before God and where the judgment of God has come before, and now one speaks from before this altar. Verse 14 is saying to the sixth angel, so this is what is being said, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now we know that Euphrates, the river, has a lot of history to it. What's the significance here in Revelation? People debate that. Um, I think it's just, again, some Old Testament imagery, there are a lot of things that happen around this river. But what's interesting is these four angels, it could be the same four angels of chapter 7, verse 1, that were holding back the four winds. But what is being implied here through this, these four angels and what's happening is, I think what's about to happen on this judgment It's very similar to the judgment we just saw last week, that God makes a distinction. There are those that are sealed of God, they're protected from this judgment, and then there's those who are not sealed by God, and so they're experiencing the direct direct wrath of God. And so we're not going to see the sealed mentioned in this uh, few passages, few verses that we look at today, but I believe in the greater context of Revelation 9, it's saying that the sealed here are protected as well as they were with the... Um, preceding judgment that had just taken place. And so let's read on verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Again, I believe excluding those who are sealed by God. Now, a third of mankind are killed. We saw a fourth of mankind were already killed in the fourth seal in Revelation 6, 8. So if you take a fourth of mankind already being killed, now a third being killed, that's half of the world's population at this point in the judgments of God have been killed. It's a lot of people. As you go on, verse 16, it says, Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. John is saying it's a lot of people. It's a great multitude. Him saying, I heard the number of them, it it may point to being a literal 200 million. I think, though, that it's more figurative because in the Greek the literal translation is two myriads upon myriads. That is a number another way of saying an infinite amount. So you go two myriads, which is ten thousand. So two times ten thousand times ten thousand. That's where you get the two hundred million. But again, I think it's figurative because if you go back to Revelation 5:11, you saw myriads upon myriads upon myriads before the throne of God worshiping him, which was another way to say, innumerable, innumerable, an infinite amount, a, a number that you can't count, a great mass of people were before the throne of God worshiping him. So I think the picture here, what's happening is there's this voice coming before the, the throne of God, before the golden altar. And they're releasing these four angels who are bound. And they seem to be captains, possibly, of this great army that is loosed. Now, remember, the last judgment we saw, there are these demons that were released from the pit. And so I think, again, there's some ties here. This is most likely a demonic force that is beyond the ability to number or count. John is saying, I saw it, and it was more than I could fathom. And I'm here to tell you, it's, it's a lot. So over 200 million, and they've got these four captains. And look at verse 17. And I saw the horses, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, haystinked blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Again, I think much like what we saw Um, with last week, this is imagery. If John could have used lasers or um, fighter jets or other modern imagery, he would have, but he was using imagery that was of his day to speak of the fierceness uh, of these judgments and the fierceness here of these demons that are being released and allowed to go and to strike a third of mankind. But again, uh, they're given limits, just like they were last week. If you think about that, A multitude that was beyond John's ability to count. A demonic force that is so fierce it defies the ability to really explain. This is being released upon the world to kill a third of mankind. If you think about that, it's merciful that only a third die. That brings us to our first point today, and that's this. God's mercy is that he sets limits on judgment in order to give people a chance to repent. It's God's mercy that he sets a limit on judgment in order to give us a chance to repent. Do you know what repentance is? Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in direction. If you're playing baseball and you're a batter and you're up and you hit the ball and you take off running to first base, if the first baseman was, excuse me, first base coach was doing this, he's waving you on, what would you do? You would round first base and you'd start heading to second. What if as you're heading to second, the third base coach was still waving you on and right as you got to second base, he changed his mind and he told you to stop, you would, what would you do? You'd have a change of mind that leads to a change in direction. You'd go back and you'd stay on the second base back. You'd stay there and you'd be safe. That's repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change in direction. And God sometimes withholds and he is withholding his judgment and even setting limits on his judgment because His heart is for people to repent, to realize who he is, to recognize him as God, to return to him. We we sang about it. Come home. God is saying, I want you to come to me. I want you to repent. I want you to be saved. And he's giving us a chance to do it. Every day he delays the return of Jesus. Every day he delays his judgment. He's giving people a chance to repent. But often as believers, we just find ourselves being angry at the world. And there's a lot going on in our world to be angry about. But what we need to understand is it's not our job to yell at the darkness. Because when judgment comes, they're going to spend an eternity in hell. So instead of yelling at the darkness right now, we should be doing everything we can to pierce the darkness with the light of the gospel. That's what God's called us to do realizing that there was a time in my life, a time in your life before you received the grace of God and you were under the judgment of God until his grace came, until you believed, until you were saved. There's a time before you were saved. God has called us in grace and mercy to go proclaim the gospel. Every day that he delays his judgment is an opportunity for us to go and to call people to believe upon Jesus and to be saved. You know, what if the prodigal son had never come home? One of the things that God does is he uses judgment to bring about repentance. He uses judgment to bring about the pressure that we need to change. In all my years of serving in youth ministry, I've said this multiple times and it applies to adults as well, I've said, you know the right thing to do. You're here and you're listening to me preach and you know the word of God. So it's not a lack of knowledge. I said, many of you will take it and you'll apply it to your life. And your life will be better for it. You'll know God's blessing on your life. But I say, I'm not foolish. I know there are those that will simply reject God's word. You will not obey God. You'll continue down your own path. And you'll suffer the consequences for rejecting God. And I hate it that many people have to get to a very low place before they acknowledge that there is one true and living God. That's the reality of many people's lives. They have to be so beat down and at the end of their rope before they're willing to acknowledge God. And I was one of them. And God had to allow me to come to the end of myself before I surrendered to his will. And it's sad that some of us have to take that path. Some of us have to take that road. But sometimes God uses judgment to bring us to repentance. So what if the prodigal son had never come home? The prodigal son told his dad, I don't, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. Give me my inheritance. I, I can do better. So he took his inheritance from his father, he went to a far off land, and he wasted his inheritance on prodigal living, wayward living, foolish living. He thought he knew better, and he was foolish. And a famine came to the land, and he was broke, because he had wasted everything. And it does not say that he was eating what the pigs ate. You need to pay attention to the story. It says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs ate. Now you're in a bad spot when pig slop looks good. And that was how he got. But then it says, this is so key, then he came to his senses. That's a picture of repentance. So look, even the hired servants in my father's house have it better than I do. I'll return and basically make myself a slave of my father because a slave in my father's house is better than this. That's a picture of works-based salvation. I can't do it, but maybe I can be good enough to to get a little bit, a little bit of a seat at the table. And so he thought he was gonna go back and be able to earn his place. But the father met him, and the father ran out to him, and the father greeted him, and that's grace. And the father says, you can't ever earn your sonship back, but in grace I welcome you home. But what if he had never returned? What if the prodigal said, I'm just gonna keep being hard-headed, I won't admit my sin, I won't admit my failure, I'm too embarrassed. What if he never returned to home? He would have never known the Father's love, the Father's mercy, the Father's grace. He would never have been truly changed, truly transformed. And for many of us, we're banging our head against the wall because of our own pride. We, we don't want to admit where we've gone wrong. or Maybe we've messed up. And until we go home, we won't know the Father's grace. And for some of us, God is just gonna keep putting the pressure on until we break. And you know why? Because he knows what's best for you. He knows it is best for you to break and return home. And so I pray that we would be quick to repent, quick to say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I'm here. Lord, you direct my steps. But God's mercy is that he sets limits on judgment in order to give people a chance to repent. For time's sake, I'm going to kind of keep moving. There's a passage in Amos, though. I think I put it in your growth guide this week. There's a passage in Amos 4 where God basically is talking to his people and he's saying, look, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this, and you're not listening. And he just goes through and he recounts the discipline of his people, trying to get them to repent. And sometimes God uses discipline. He uses judgment to get us to repent. But other times we'll see he uses something else. And we'll see that before we close. But let's, let's move on where we left off. Let's, um, we didn't actually cover verses 18 and 19. Let's cover those. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. So this great army is coming. A third of mankind is killed. And the way that John is writing here, he's separating this out into like it's three separate plagues. He says, fire, and the smoke, and the brimstone. And then look at verse 19. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, so like a snake, having heads, and with them they do harm. So we saw before last week they were likened to locusts and scorpions. Now they're likened to a snake. Again, a, a symbol of judgment. And they had power in their mouth and their tails. Tails like serpents. So again, this is a scary image. A third of mankind being killed. I want you to think about the severity of that judgment. Judgment. If we're alive and that happens, you will see the hand of God fulfilling his word, judging his creation, judging people that have hardened their hearts, that have not responded to the gospel, that refuse to believe. There's already been many things that have happened in the earth where people would have had a chance to repent. So you have to understand, by the time you get to the sixth trumpet, people have already been seeing God move, and they've already been rejecting and rejecting and rejecting and refusing to repent. And so, really, when you get to the next couple verses, it's not as much of a surprise. Look at verse 20. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by the plagues, did not repent of their works, of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver, brass, stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Let's stop there for just a minute. Again, the insanity of sin. People have seen, like Pharaoh in Egypt, like the people in Jesus' day, like us as believers, we see the hand of God. They've seen God fulfill His word. They will see God fulfill Revelation 9, and their response will be to refuse to repent. That's crazy. But again, that's the nature of sin. And look at why they're refusing to repent. Look at what they're choosing to turn to. They were not killed by these plagues, those that were, they did not repent. That they should not worship demons. So, what is God wanting them to do? Quit worshiping demons and idols of gold. This is what they're choosing instead of the worship of God idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Again, it's crazy. In the Old Testament, idol worship is described like this that you'd cut down a tree, you'd carve an image out of it to worship. You chop up the rest, use it as firewood, and then you bow down and worship the image that the leftovers you're using as firewood. And God was saying to people in day, it's crazy. Do you not see the craziness of your own actions? But that's sin, and what we need to do is understand that, like I said before, before we write off those people and say, I'd never do that, yes, we do. We absolutely do. Let me give you a second point today. Satan is well pleased with the child of God who worships an idol. You want to please Satan today? Worship anyone other than the one true and the living God. You know the first two commandments deal with that? God's saying, I've delivered you from Egypt. You're going to be my people. Let's set down some ground rules. First of all, I am the only God. And second of all, don't make any image to a false god. And we break that and we violate that day after day after day. In the Bible, in Deuteronomy 32, they show that demon worship was really the force and the power of demons were actually what was behind idol worship. And Paul reiterates that in 1 Corinthians 10, 20. He's saying an idol is really just something made of hands. God's not worried about idol worship in that sense. There's no competition for him, but there is a demonic force behind the worship of idols. In Deuteronomy and in 1 Corinthians, they point to the demonic forces of hell as what's behind idol worship. And scripture calls idolatry basically anything that we put ahead of God in our life. So let me ask you this. What are the idols that Satan loves to subtly slip into our lives? Because we think of idol worship as bounding down to image of gold or silver and all this. We think, well, of course I don't do that. But I think in the world today, man, we sure have a lot of families that worship their kids. We see that going on in our world, don't we? I've even seen families that have marital problems, instead of the husband and wife getting their marriage right, they just put all of their energy into their kids so their kids think they're great. The best thing you can do for your kids is to love your spouse. That's the period that is the best thing. And if you have unforgiveness towards your spouse and your marriage is a disaster, you're not loving your kids. You're just appeasing your kids and playing favorites with your kids and trying to get them to like you. But often people will make kids their idol. If my kids are happy, then everything's right in life. I just need to keep my kids happy. That is an idol by definition. You're putting your kids on the throne of your life. We're to raise our kids to love the Lord, to know the Lord. We want them to have good lives, but they better not be an idol in your life. The Bible says that when we idol worship, when we worship anything other than God, Satan's real happy with that. What about our image online? Hey, how worried are we about what other people think of us? I don't know, what a bunch of garbage. We got to have the right posts and Instagram followers and all of this stuff. And we have to present our lives the right way or else we feel weak or we're worried about what other people in the community think of us. Let me, when you stand before God, he's not going to ask how many followers you had on Instagram. Okay? He's not going to ask you how well liked you were in your community. I've seen people that take their name and reputation in a community, and that is their God, hands down. You see, I could go on and on and on, I promise. But there are what I call subtle idols in our lives. And you know why they exist? Because Satan knows, you know, we're dumb, but we're not that dumb. So he doesn't show up with just blatant things that we'd spot a mile coming. He brings those subtle idols into your life. He throws that subtle bait out there to see if you'll latch onto it, if you'll lock onto it, if you'll take it. And Satan loves it. He is pleased with the child of God who worships an idol. Third point today is this. Sin is siding with Satan. And the forces of hell and shaking our fists at God. And you think, man, it just got really heavy this turn this morning. You know what? If we're going to really walk with God and know the life he has for us, we really need to understand just how offensive sin is to God. We really need to have a proper understanding of that. There is a Hebrew word, hatat, that is a very popular definition for sin because it is missing the mark. It's an archery term. So it became very popular to say that sin is simply missing the mark. I draw back, I shoot a bow, an arrow, my arrow's a little bit off the bullseye, and that's sin. That is a part of the picture of what sin is. Sin is not just missing the mark. Sin is open rebellion and defiance against the living God who has made his will known to you. It is shaking your angry fist and the hand of God and saying, I will not do what you want me to do. That's sin. That's sin. Sin's not like, I just messed up a little bit. I just kind of missed the mark. I need a do-over. Sin is open rebellion against the king of the universe. It is siding with Satan and the forces of hell when we sin against God. We need to understand this. We need to understand that Satan loves it when you, child of God, worship an idol. And sin is not something to be played with, toyed with, it's not that bad. It's always that bad when you rebel against the king of the universe. You know, fast forwarding from the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel, they finally went to the promised land. This was a land that God promised to Abraham. Abraham believed God and God showed it to him. And God said, I'm going to give it to your descendants. And here the descendants of Abraham have been delivered from Egypt. They've seen the hand of God. God has given them water from a rock manna in the wilderness, the visible presence of God by a fire by night and smoke during the day, a cloud, excuse me, during the day to shade them. I mean, they know the presence of God. They go to the promised land. Moses sends out 12 spies, one from each of the tribes. They go in. God has already said, get this, God has said, that land is yours. I'm giving it to you. It belongs to you. You're about to go take that land. God's word has come to these people. And they go spied out. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing to do. But they come back and they say, Mmm, those people are big. Uh, they're really strong. They're fierce. Their cities are fortified. Uh, we look like gnats on the, you know, like fleas on the back of a dog when we went in there. I mean, it's it's gonna be tough, Moses." except for Joshua and Caleb, two of them. You know what Caleb said? Caleb said, God's given us this land. Yes, a land that's filled with giants and fortified cities, and and we look like a speck, but God's given it to us, so that's going to make our victory all the more awesome. That was Caleb's attitude. God's told us it's ours. Let's go take it. This is going to be great. But the ten other people said, "Mm mm-mm, can't do it. Wouldn't, Wouldn't be prudent. Can't do it. Did you know that that nation, that whole nation of Israel, was turned away into disobedience by ten people? That's scary. The rest of the nation believed those ten spies that didn't have the faith to trust God. And they spent 40 years walking in the wilderness, waiting to die, so that God could raise up a generation that would actually believe him and go take the promised land. Sin's not just a little matter that God overlooks. It's not just a little bit of a missing of the mark. It is absolute rebellion against God. And God has told us, he's given us his word. He said, now go and do it. And so we have the opportunity. We have the option to go, it's too hard. It's too big. There's no way I can obey God. Or... So take God at his word and say, you know what, this is absolutely too big for me and that's what's gonna make this victory all the more awesome because the only way this will work is if God shows up. Amen? That's why it says we walk by faith and not by sight. And many of you, your own reputation, your own success has become your own idol. You're only doing what you think you can handle. I don't wanna live a life that at the end I could take credit for? My goodness, that's boring. I want to live a life that people would go, man, look what God did through that guy. There's no way that moron could handle that. <laughs> that's the kind of life I want to live. I want to live the life where God works through me, that he alone receives the glory for it. And you have a choice. You either look at the land and you say, we can't do it. We can't do it. Or you say, God's given it to us, and it's going to be awesome to see how he shows up. But we need to understand that sin is not just kind of missing the mark. It is choosing to disobey God and shake our hands in in his face. But let me give you the fourth. Actually, before we go to the fourth, I want you to read this last verse. Because we dealt with the idol worship of verse 20. Let's look at verse 21. It says it again. This is so crazy. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries and of their sexual immorality or their thefts. These are all like the big ten things. Like basic, here's how you walk with God. Don't worship idols. Don't kill each other. You know, don't be awful. I mean, that's in essence what's being said. And they're going, "Mm, we're going to keep doing what we want to do. Twice it's saying they refuse to repent in light of the mighty acts of God. I don't understand it when I read it. But again, when I look at my own life, I do understand it. I can place myself in this verse and go, yeah, I've done that too. There's times where God has been moving in my life and I have refused to obey. That brings us to our final point. God's mercy is that through the cross, he has carried our weaknesses and sin and calls us to himself. Again, as we sang about today earlier, oh, sinner, come home. That's what he wants. God is not up there just like, I can't believe what you did. He's saying, no, just come to me and let's get it right. God's mercy is that through the cross he's carried our weakness and sin and he calls us home, I read one commentator that said it this way, the cross testifies that God loves a world hostile to him and even shared our pain to ultimately liberate us from it. The cross is God saying, you're just completely messed up and I'm going to come and I'm going to participate in all of that garbage that you're doing so that through me, you can be saved out of it. He didn't remove, he didn't remain distant, he drew near. That's how I think about it. God's mercy is that through the cross, he's carried it. Think of the restraint that Jesus showed. I mean, you're talking about the king of the universe. He's come to his creation, rejected by his creation. He's been handed over. It's a mock trial. How frustrating is it when people say stuff about you that's not true? Now, imagine if you're the king of the universe and they're lying about you in a mock trial. That alone had to be just infuriating. But he endured it. Betrayed by one of his own, one of his disciples. That had to be infuriating. He endured it. Beaten mercifully, mercilessly, excuse me. I don't know what word I just said. Beaten without mercy. I mean, they, the way he's described in Isaiah, you couldn't even really recognize his face. He'd been beaten so bad. Then he's carrying his own cross. He's so beaten, he collapses under the weight of the crossbeam. God experiencing weakness to the degree that he can't even carry his own crossbeam. And as he's doing that, they're mocking him. Now, I want you to think about this. At any point, Jesus could have said, I'm done with these jokers. I am so done. Father, the human experiment is over. Zap, and we'd have been done. At any moment, he would have been right to do that. He would have been just to do that. It would have been in his power to do that. But he endured, he endured, he endured. He humbled himself, he humbled himself, he humbled himself, even to the point where he laid on a ground along that crossbeam and allowed his creation to nail his hands to it, to raise him up where the cross thudded into the ground and jarred those fresh nail prints in his hands and his feet. And then they mocked him, and they said, "You who said who saved others, you saved yourself." I and mean, then he humbled himself and he endured it, and he stayed there. And why did he do that? For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is the motivation. And for you and I today, it is impossible for us to live the life that God has called us to live, apart. From the motivation of loving God, of knowing his love, and loving him. And as we love him, then the life he's called us to live is not burdensome, but it becomes a joy because we realize that we're living in his grace. We're living in his mercy. We realize that our lives are not about us. They're all about who he is, what he's done, and who he's making us to be that is far greater than we could ever be on our own. that leads us to our last verse today, Romans 2, 4. We read it in our scripture reading, but I talked earlier in the sermon about how sometimes God uses judgment to bring us to repentance. That's in Amos, we see that. But listen, sometimes God uses kindness to bring us to repentance. Look at Romans chapter two, verse four. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering? not knowing that the goodness or kindness of God leads you to repentance. What an amazing verse. God is saying, I love you, I care about you, you are mine, and if you'll stop and you'll just see how good I am to you, how could you want to do anything but come to me? It's God's goodness, it's God's goodness that leads us to repentance. Would you please stand with me this morning? If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus to save you, man, today is your day. God's brought you to this place. God is drawing you to himself. It is by faith that we receive the gift of salvation. To repent, to stop going the direction you're going, to have a change of mind that leads to a change in direction, and a change of heart. Where God saves you, and He puts His Spirit in you, and He forgives you of your sins, and He makes you His child. But listen, to continue to go your own way, what you're doing is you're heading towards the judgment of God. And there is coming a day when we all give an account. If you've never put your faith in Christ... Do so today. Turn from your way. Believe upon Jesus and be saved. just a moment, we're going to sing a song of response, responding to the word of God. I'll be down here. Man, I'd love to pray with you. It's by faith you trust Jesus to save you. I think if we can just let our guard down enough to be honest with ourselves, God will show us all the idols in our lives. Can we just stop with all the noise and all the trying to excuse our behavior and cover it up. Just long enough to say, God, just, yeah, speak to me, show me. Where am I failing at the big first two? I want to know you as the one true living God, and I want to cast down every idol. By your grace that you give me, help me to cast down every idol. What's so crazy about idol worship, I close with this, is usually the very things we worship destroy us. They destroy your life. There's many more stories that I could share in one morning about that. But as we give ourselves over to a living God, we truly find life. Give yourselves to him and you will live. I'm gonna pray. I'll be down front. Man, I'd love to pray with you before you leave this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer now? Lord Jesus, we love you. With thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you give us opportunities to repent. That each day you withhold your judgment is your mercy. You're saying, come to me. Thank you for the cross. That through Jesus Christ we can be forgiven. We can truly walk with you. We can know you. We can even shine for you. Tell others about you. and Live a life that brings glory to you. That's... Pretty awesome to think about. Bless this time of response now for the glory of your great name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.